So I, I, uh, some of you may be wondering why it is that, uh, why give a, 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 such a formal introduction to Roger Pascoe since he's been known to so many of us for so long. Um, well, it's been two years now since uh, Roger was among us on staff at our church and a lot has changed then, there's a lot of new faces and so we don't want to assume that, uh, that everybody knows uh, people, the things we might be talking about in our church. And uh, we find that's helpful for people who are newer and so on. But uh, I told Roger I was going to do this. He said, don't say too much, but I just kind of ignored that. And so here we go. Uh, since 2001, Roger has been the president of the Institute for Biblical Preaching, whose mission is to strengthen the church in biblical preaching and leadership. From 2001 till 2005, he was the director of the Stephen Olford Center for Preaching and Leadership at Heritage Theological Seminary. At the same time, Roger served as a program director of the Olford Institutes at the Stephen Olford Center at Union University in Memphis, Tennessee. He's conducted many pastors' conferences overseas uh, on biblical preaching, church leadership, pastoral ministry issues, and theology. And the goal of that is to provide pastors who have little to no theological training with skills and encouragement to help them faithfully shepherd God's people, which is a noble uh, goal. He also served at the um, as senior pastor at Calvary Baptist Church in Woodbridge, spent almost 20 years of bivocational ministry in a brethren assembly, and as you know, was here with us for many years uh, on staff at Hesper Baptist Church. He's ordained with the fellowship, has a Master of Theological Studies degree, as well as a Doctor of Ministry in Expository Preaching. He's married to Janet. They have uh, two adult children, uh, three grandchildren, recently inherited more through marriage. And I know they delight in their kids and their grandkids and love to talk about them. Aside from all of that, I have the privilege of calling Roger a friend. Uh, he's been a mentor to me. He is a friend to me. And I'm especially grateful for his friendship this morning because last Saturday I reached out to a number of men asking if one of them would be available to preach this today because I just needed to catch my breath. And Roger reached back and said he was willing and I was very happy for him to uh, be here among us. So uh, one of my uh, favorite things to do is to sit and just talk with Roger about the Lord, about his word, to pray with this brother and hear how God is using him, which is happening around the world. He's writing things, being translated into multiple languages, and the readership, I think, is in the hundreds of thousands now. Uh, 1.6 million uh, of uh, around the world reaching pastors. So I'm thankful that the Lord has given you health and strength in this ministry, brother, and I ask that you would join me in welcoming to preach this morning. Well, by now, I've gotten used to being ignored. I would kind of feel out of my depth if I weren't. But it's always a pleasure to... Uh, come back and be among you here at Hespler and uh, to minister the Word of God to you. I was speaking with uh, Pastor John Tendamba on Friday, and he sends his greetings. In fact, uh, all being well, Lord willing, he might even be here next uh, summer, and so that would be a thrill for us to have him with us. You know, life in countries like uh, Burkina Faso are not easy, and that's an understatement. Um, terrorism has become a uh, 
very significant issue. Thankfully, the Lord has protected the Gampella Center uh, from terrorists to this point. Um, but in other parts of the country, it is uh, many people are losing their lives. Pastors are discouraged because their church is closed. Um, uh, people aren't showing up for church, even if they were open. In fact, the eastern part of Burkina Faso has been in lockdown now for several weeks. And uh, so it's, uh, if you can remember to pray for them, that would be uh, much appreciated. And I, I know that they would be encouraged by that. Uh, one of the things that I do uh, at John's request was about a year or so ago, began to publish a, a weekly article for pastors for their encouragement. So we call it a word of encouragement. And uh, I write it and um, translate it into French, and John distributes it uh, over there uh, through WhatsApp, of all things. I didn't even know you could do that. but um, So we started out a little over a year ago with uh, 50 pastors on the distribution list uh, who were pastors who had come to us for training in the past. That was about 14 months ago. And today the distribution list is over 500, uh, not just in Burkina Faso, but across sub-Saharan Africa from Mali through um, Gabon and uh, Burkina Faso and, and, and on, and uh, includes not only pastors, but missionaries and evangelists. So we praise God for that. You can just get a sense for what God is doing over there, even in the midst of these days. Well, about a year or so ago, Jan and I began to do uh, crossword puzzles at the uh, encouragement of our daughter, um, you know, fill in all the extra time that we had. and um, But we do, and I like to spend an hour or so in an evening after supper and do crossword puzzles, and some of you probably do, uh, not crossword puzzles, I'm sorry, jigsaw puzzles. And some of you like puzzles. I know that there are many in this, uh, of the older folks anyway, in the church who do puzzles, bigger puzzles than we do. And um, so anyway, we've done probably three or four at this point of jigsaw puzzles over the last uh, year or so. And uh, as you know, when you open up a new puzzle, you take the wrapper off, the clear plastic wrapper, and you can see the picture of the puzzle on the outside of the box. And then you begin the laborious task of, uh, you know, doing all the outside edges and, and trying to fill it in. And over the course of doing this over the last year or so, I've uh, made uh, two observations, which I know you'll be just thrilled to uh, to write down and apply to your life because they are life-transforming. And um, the, the first is this, that you look at the picture on the box and you try to uh, do the puzzle according to the picture. But what you need to understand is that the picture on the box bears no relationship to the picture on the puzzle. If you can get a hold of that, it will save you an awful lot of frustration. The other thing that will be a great encouragement to you is that every puzzle uh, is missing one piece. And so you get to the end, you think you've done it wrong, but you haven't. Don't look under the furniture or clean out the vacuum cleaner to see if you vacuumed it up. It's just the fact that they, these puzzles come, it seems to me, with a piece missing. What does this all have to do with Galatians 4.19 is the question. Well, I think that as you think about it, and you'll see it as we, as we progress, that that was the problem in the church or the churches in Galatia. What they looked like on the outside was not what they 
looked like on the inside. There was something tragically distorted and missing in their lives. They were being tempted, as you know, to give up the one true gospel in favor of a distorted gospel. They were regressing in their spiritual maturity. That was the missing piece in the jigsaw puzzle of their lives. They were becoming less and less like Christ instead of more and more like him. So much so that the Apostle Paul wondered if they were truly saved at all. And that's the piece that's missing from so many Christians' lives, maybe even in some lives here this morning. They lack or are missing spiritual maturity and stability. So that's what we're going to talk about today, is growing in Christ's likeness. Our title is The Damage of a Distorted Gospel. And our text is Galatians 4, if you take your Bibles, please, and turn to Galatians 4, and we're going to focus solely on verse 19. Galatians 4, then, verse 19. Paul addressing them says, My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth, until Christ is formed in you, until Christ is formed in you. Let's then pray together before we go further. Lord God, we are here today as willing and joyful worshipers, those who have been cleansed by the precious blood of Christ. At least we pray that that may be true of everyone here. We thank you for calling us into your presence this morning to collectively raise our hearts and voices in worship of you to exalt your name above all other names. And as we look into your word now, we just pray that you would open up our understanding that we may see the truth contained in this little verse and apply it to our lives. And more than that, that our wills would be submissive to it and that as a result, we may grow in Christ-likeness, becoming more and more like him. And so that at the day when, Lord Jesus, when you come again, that we will not be ashamed before you at your coming. We pray this in your precious name. Amen. And so if I were to summarize this message in a sentence, I would say that it's something like, we grow in spiritual maturity as we become more like Christ. We grow in spiritual maturity as we become more like Christ. Now, I have to set the context for this. So before going into the specific verse, you need to understand the background of this. And I'll do this as quickly as I can. The Christians in the region of Galatia, which is today Turkey, were the Apostle Paul's converts. He had preached the gospel among them and they had believed, but now they were being influenced by Jewish teachers who were trying to convince the Gentile Christians to observe certain Jewish religious customs. One of which was that they said, in order to be saved, males must be circumcised. So we call these people now today Judaizers the legalists of their day, the people who demanded faith plus works for salvation. 
And you may have already picked up in the verses that Pastor Sean read that, that this raised the, the anger, the indignation of the Apostle Paul for his converts were in danger of falling for a false gospel, what he calls in chapter 1, a different kind of a gospel. I'm amazed, he said, that you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, chapter 1, verse 6. Paul then is forthright in his condemnation of such false teaching. He says, not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So he is outraged. You hear this as you read through the book. Outraged that people should come in among them spreading a false message and that the Galatian Christians were actually receiving it. This was a false or distorted or corrupted gospel. And it can be so ever so subtle in its message. On the surface, it can seem ever so attractive and even pious. People who are insisting that you keep certain rules and regulations to live your life if you are truly a Christian. These false teachers didn't outright contradict the gospel, but they added to it such that it wasn't the same anymore. Yes, you need to believe in the saving work or atoning work of Christ, they said, but more than that, you need to keep certain aspects of the law. This then was the corruption that they were bringing to the gospel message, a perverted or distorted gospel. And Paul was very clear. He said a person in chapter 2, a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. He goes on to say in verses 19, the verses that we read earlier, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So the very idea that some persons were teaching them that they needed to add the law to faith in Christ was absolutely preposterous. This goes to the very heart of the Christian gospel. If this were to spread and were adopted by churches, where the whole mission and message of Christianity would be, would be destroyed. So no wonder that Paul says, you foolish Galatians, chapter 3, verse 1, who has cast a spell on you? before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. He's saying, that's what I did. I clearly and faithfully portrayed before you Christ crucified. I declared the truth of the gospel publicly to you, and yet despite such public declaration and clarity, someone is pulling the wool over your eyes. He goes so far as to say, who has brought you under their spell? In other words, this is so outrageous that it smacks of satanic, satanic deception. Are you so foolish? Verse 3 says, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Chapter 3, verses 3 and 5. The truth of the matter, Paul says, is this. All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Chapter 3, verse 10. And you, he says to the Galatians, are putting yourselves 
back under slavery, under the curse of the law, as we read earlier, from which you have been redeemed. Listen, he says, when the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. So now, since you know God, or rather you have become known by God, how can you turn back to worthless teachings? Do you want to be enslaved to them all over again? He says, I'm fearful for you that perhaps my labor for you has been wasted. Maybe they're not believers at all. Now this brings us then to our text this morning. And throughout that short review, you can probably uh, uh, pick up or hear the pain in Paul's entreaty. But now in our text, all of a sudden, his tone changes from sharpness to tenderness, from a polemic or an argument to an entreaty, from a lawyer arguing his case, which he does brilliantly, to a mother pleading with her recalcitrant children. Such was their commitment to the gospel and their love for him that he says, you received me. This was their former relationship. You received me as an angel of God. At one time, he says, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Such was their commitment to him. Now, notice the first principle then that we learn from this verse is that spiritual immaturity makes you susceptible to false teaching. Spiritual immaturity makes you susceptible to false teaching. Those who insist that you must do works of self-righteousness in order to be saved are false teachers. And spiritual immaturity hampers your ability to distinguish between truth and error. It hampers your ability to stand firm for the truth and not be swayed by it, by their false message. It makes you susceptible to bondage under legalism and rituals rather than the simplicity of the gospel. Now, notice what what spiritual immaturity does. Spiritual immaturity stunts your growth. You get that from the way he addresses them. You are my dear little children. In one sense, you could say, well, that's really nice. It's it's an address of, of endearment, which it is. But on the other hand, inferred in this is perhaps that they had not yet grown up It has stunted their spiritual growth. They were still little children. They were infants. They were spiritual babies. These believers had progressed once to spiritual um, freedom in Christ, but now they were regressing into spiritual bondage under the law, just like little children under the supervision of a guardian. This is a most unnatural regression from normal maturity, reverting back to infancy from adulthood, going back to being tutored and disciplined like a small child. For that's what the law does. It brings you under its bondage. It treats you as a child. Spiritual immaturity stunts your growth, and spiritual immaturity causes anguish. Spiritual immaturity causes anguish. 
How painful would it be for a parent to see their adult child revert back to infancy? And Paul says, I am again suffering, agonizing is the word there, in childbirth for you. Their susceptibility to trying to syncretize, in other words, bring together, mesh together the gospel with Judaism was causing him deep anguish, emotional pain and suffering. You can hear the pathos of his pastoral heart as he likens his distress over them to birth pains. These labor pains were causing him perplexity and apprehension, even indignation. They were his spiritual children, after all. Metaphorically, they had been conceived in him when he first preached the gospel to them, when he first planted the seed of truth among them. And like a pregnant woman, that seed began to germinate in him. They were his spiritual embryos, if you will, that needed a warm, safe place to develop in their understanding and acceptance of the gospel. And throughout that period of development, undoubtedly they had multiple questions and doubts and fears, and he had nurtured them through that and protected them. He had experienced the pain of the spiritual morning sickness, if you will, as they began to grow inside him. As they kicked and turned one way and then another, as they progressed in their understanding of the gospel, all of which was part of the fetal development process, he had borne the discomfort of this spiritual pregnancy, carrying them around for the entire gestation period, longing for them to be born into the family of God. Those were long, hard months, but he patiently endured their misunderstandings and questions, their need for repeated explanations of fundamental truths, and finally they came to full term. The day of their Delivery arrived and he gave birth to them as a family of spiritual babies who needed his care and his protection as their spiritual mother to keep them from harm and danger and to feed them with nourishing food, the sincere milk of the word. And now they had boldly confessed Christ. They were born into God's kingdom. That was a wonderful day, undoubtedly, of celebration and joy. And he watched them grow. And as they develop from, in their identity as believers and in their growth, they began to exercise more and more independence of him. Oh, no, how he longed for them to reach adulthood, to be steadfast in Christ, to be his full pride and joy, to be strong and established in the truth, reliable and firm and mature and responsible. Spiritual immaturity, though, stunts your growth. And it causes anguish. Notice spiritual immaturity makes you vulnerable. Makes you vulnerable. One commentator puts it this way. They stood in danger of suffering a spiritual miscarriage. They were spiritually vulnerable. Timothy George puts it this way. Uh, let me see. I've, I've lost my place here. I've lost the quote, so I can't, I'll, get, I'll get to it. They were being pushed around then like little babies, influenced by people with greater, um, stronger personalities than they were, 
pushed around in strollers, if you will, like babies, dependent on those who were influencing them. These false teachers who were insisting that believers, that believing in Christ alone was not enough. Teaching them that in addition to trusting Christ, they had to perform certain religious rituals. And so in this way, they were vulnerable to abandoning the true gospel. That's why Paul felt once more like their spiritual mother, going through the pain and anguish of childbirth all over again. And childbirth is clearly bad enough once without going through it twice and particularly without going through it for the same baby twice. That's the imagery here. Of course, physically that can't happen. That was the whole conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus in John 3 when Nicodemus said, can a man be born again? Can he go back into his mother's womb and be born a second time? Well, of course, no. But he was missing the point. Spiritually, this can happen such that Paul actually feels like he is conceiving them all over again and the gestation period is being repeated all over again. He's like a pregnant mother with them, struggling to bring them to full term again, to restore them to the truth that they had once boldly confessed. But he is willing to endure this spiritual pregnancy all over again, if that's what it took, to secure their spiritual well-being, to be assured of their commitment to the one true gospel, to be confident of their security in Christ. Such was his love for them and his commitment to them. He would not stand idly by and watch them give in to the attacks and the taunts and the threats of the Judaizers trying to turn them back to basic Judaistic rituals. Do you see how prone we are to believe and practice religious ritualism rather than Christian principles. Do you see how the matter that Paul is addressing is so appropriate for our day and for us here in this church? Religious ritualism has a basic attraction to us. We desperately want to earn our standing before God. We are by nature fundamentally opposed to the whole notion of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We are convinced that somehow we are basically good and that if there is a God, we can and we must earn our way to heaven. You see this in most religious systems around us. You see it in Roman Catholicism. You see it in Jehovah's Witnesses. You see it in Mormonism and many, many more. A few years ago, when I was still here at the church, I was in Sibiu, uh, a city in the central Romania, teaching a pastor's conference. And one day, when we had some spare time, we went downtown and uh, to look at a beautiful old Baroque-style uh, Roman Catholic church. And I stood at the back of that church for quite some time. I was quite intrigued, actually, by the uh, piety and the devotion of the people who came in and out. This was just an ordinary working day, 
in the, in the uh, partway through the day, and people were coming in and out. Some were lighting candles, presumably for the benefit of their dead relatives. I'm not quite sure. Others were praying silently, sitting in the pews. One old man came in and went up to a statue of Mary holding the baby Jesus. Very tenderly and reverently, he stroked the baby Jesus. And as I watched this, I thought to myself, how sad that these people who are so devoted could be under such deception. How wonderful it would be if the truth of the gospel burst into their lives. That they were redeemed, not so that they understood that they were redeemed, not with rituals or corruptible things like idols of marble or stone, but with the precious blood of Christ. In our text, you can hear Paul crying out, Why are you doing this? What are you thinking? I think his emotion is like that of some parents who once oohed and odd over their newborn baby. There was nothing like that baby. It was perfect. Their delight and joy. The child grew up and made some bad choices. Went off the rails, spiritually, morally perhaps. The sweetness of babyhood was long gone. The hopes and aspirations of the parents were now a long, distant memory. Instead, they suffer the anguish of heart, wondering, how did this happen? Perhaps their child got in with the wrong crowd at school. Perhaps they were pulled into a vortex of bad behavior and habits. Perhaps they were the subject of bullying or text message aggression and they became depressed. Perhaps their child was offered a drug by a school friend and not wanting to be different, tried it and became hooked. And you see the progression. One thing leads to another until they get to the stage where they don't listen to you as their parents anymore. They don't want anything to do with the gospel anymore. Whatever it is, you know what I mean about the pain suffered by parents whose child withdraws and regresses. Jan and I watched a very touching documentary a few years back. Done, uh, it was a documentary of young men in prison in England. And they had brought together a group of these young prisoners and their parents came together to be interviewed and to speak about what had happened. We saw, we saw and we heard the anguish of the parents, their hopes, their tears, their regrets. They wanted to be oh so proud of their sons. But they couldn't figure out what happened or how they'd get out of the mess that they were in. Paul is experiencing that same pain over his spiritual children, all because the Galatians were turning away from the one true gospel to a distorted gospel. And they were in danger 
of reverting to the status of a fetus at best or a complete miscarriage at worst. Lest you think this was peculiar to the Galatian churches, let me warn you, every church faces this same danger today. Thinking that somehow, by introducing rituals and rules and regulations which are, have nothing to do with Scripture, that somehow that's necessary in order for you to be saved. This is the temptation that comes from, or the teaching that comes from and the influence from liberals and religionists want you to give up adherence to the one true gospel. It's no different now than it was in Paul's day. Churches which were once known as stalwarts of the faith are compromising their position on the gospel in order to accommodate both religious and cultural beliefs and practices. And you can think of many of those things yourselves, like gender and marriage issues, for example. So spiritual immaturity makes you susceptible to false teaching. But notice this secondly, spiritual maturity makes you more like Christ. Spiritual immaturity makes you susceptible to false teaching. But spiritual maturity makes you more like Christ. And the question here is, how long is Paul going to put up with this? How long will he struggle with them? How long will he continue to feel this pain? And his answer is in our verse, until Christ is formed in you. So the imagery switches all of a sudden. We often don't study the Bible as literature. But it's a good study to see the design, the structure, the, uh, the, the descriptions and the imagery that the writers use that they sat down and they thought about how they're going to communicate this idea. And here, Paul switches now from himself as a pregnant mother to in whom a spiritual child is being formed to the Galatians themselves as spiritual mothers in whom Christ is being formed. You see that switch from pregnancy to pregnancy. Not, not now their formation in him, but Christ's formation in them. And as Calvin puts it, this double imagery indicates that Christ is being formed in us is the same as our being formed in Christ. Timothy George, this was the quote I'd thought of earlier, says the Galatians who a moment ago were described as being formed in the womb, are now spoken of as expectant mothers who themselves must wait for an embryonic Christ to be fully developed within them. What Paul is dealing with here is this doctrine of sanctification. Please understand this, that Christ-likeness develops through sanctification. Now, sanctification, simply put, is the state or the process of being set apart for God exclusively. The state or the process of being set apart for God exclusively. We are positionally sanctified when we first trust Christ. And then we are progressively sanctified throughout our Christian life as we become more and more like Christ. That's what Paul is speaking of here. Progressive sanctification. And the verb that is translated here, formed, 
till Christ is formed in you is in fact a medical term describing the development of an embryo into an infant. This is how long Paul's pastoral labor pains for them would continue. He says, until Christ is formed in you, until you are rooted and grounded in Christ, Colossians 2 verse 7 says, until you can say, for me to live is Christ, Philippians 1 and 21. Until Christ is so embedded in you that you are progressively transformed into his image, as Paul says in Corinthians, from one degree of glory to another. Well, only then would the birthing process be over. That's how long he would endure the pain he's experiencing with them until the process of sanctification is fully visible in them. Well, how does this process of sanctification take place? Sanctification is an inner working of God's Spirit. It is Christ being formed in you. In other words, it's an internal transformation by the Spirit, the goal of which is that your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5 and 23. That's complete and final sanctification when the Lord Jesus comes again and we experience the transformation of our bodies and we are translated into his presence where we will enjoy perfection spiritually and physically. It's the work of God in every believer. Paul says again in 1 Thessalonians 5.24, He who calls you is faithful. He will do it. Sanctification is God's work and God's will for every Christian. And this is what we as pastors, every pastor wants to see in his people the formation and development of Christ in them. Not only that Christ dwells in you, that's true of every believer, but that Christ is formed in you so that you are continuously transformed more and more into the likeness of Jesus. And so despite the pain and the heartache that Paul was going through, he would not quit until Christ is formed in them. And he would keep after them until that goal was reached. All of his struggles over them, all of his perplexity, all of his disappointment, all of his outrage over what was happening did not cause him to give up on them. His overarching desire was that they stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God, Colossians 4.12 says. Instead of regressing back into legalism, he would pursue them until their calling and election were evident. And this only happens through the development of Christ in us. So first, we are born into God's kingdom through the hearing of faith in the gospel, at which time Christ is implanted in us by the Holy Spirit. And then Christ is formed in us more and more. Christ-likeness then should be the goal of every believer. That's the normal and natural process of Christian maturity. So what does that look like? Scripture tells us it is to walk as Jesus walked. 1 John 2, verse 6. It is to so walk in Him. 
Colossians 2, verse 6. It is to be conformed to the image of God's Son. Romans 8, verse 29. When we first trust Christ, our spiritual gestation is complete. Then we begin to develop from spiritual infancy to puberty and to adulthood. That is progressive sanctification. New birth in Christ is the beginning of this continuous process by the Holy Spirit in us by which we become more like Christ. Our union with Christ becomes more and more evident and practical as he is formed in our hearts, as the very life of Christ develops in us. That's the process by which we are transformed into his image so that others see less and less of us and more and more of him. It's just like in our growing up years. I can remember this happening in my life, and you probably can as well. Somebody who has known the family for a long time will often say, he walks just like his father. He talks just, or she talks just like her mother. That's what happens in physical maturity, and that's what should happen in spiritual maturity. And so, my summary or statement or my proposition at the beginning was this. We grow in spiritual maturity as we become more like Christ. That's our desire for you, that you become spiritually mature, not formed by false teachers, but by the truth of Christ, not conformed to the world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind, not fulfilling the desires of the flesh, but bearing the fruit of the Spirit, not slaves to sin, but free in Christ, for it is for freedom that Christ died. Galatians 5 verse 1 says, A false gospel does not give you freedom. Rather, a false gospel enslaves you. It enslaves you to its rituals and demands, whereas the true gospel frees you to live for righteousness. Perhaps a piece then of the spiritual puzzle is missing in your life. Perhaps you come here week by week. Coming to church is perhaps a ritual for you. Coming to church is a good thing to do. But may it never become a ritual. May it be the freshness of our hearts for Christ. You come week by week and you participate in the services just like this morning and others look at you and they think that you're a Christian. You talk like one. But when you scratch beneath the surface, perhaps your life is totally different when people aren't looking. And you know that there is a void inside you, something that needs to be filled. But you're not willing to submit to the claims of Christ over you. Perhaps the impression that people have of you is not the true picture. There's a difference between the box and the puzzle. Perhaps it's because you're bombarded by many false gospels out there and there are many of them today. Or perhaps, as I said before, you've never been saved in the first place. Do you know that there are people who go to church regularly who think they're saved? 
but who aren't. So if you're plagued with doubts about the truth, do yourself a favor. Read the scriptures. They are the truth of God. Jesus said the truth will set you free. Submit to the truth of scripture. Obedience, you see, is a vital part of Christian discipleship. Draw near to Christ. Develop a daily practice of spending time with him in the word and prayer. Surround yourself with Christian friends who will hold you accountable and protect you from danger. Be actively engaged in a Bible-believing church. Put yourself under their authority and make yourself accountable to its pastors and its leadership. Remember the, very, the, the two main points that we made in our sermon. Spiritual immaturity makes you susceptible to false teaching. But spiritual maturity makes you more like Christ. If you're being influenced by a false gospel at school, at your work, in your neighborhood, wherever, people who come to the door, our desire is that you turn away from them and turn back to the purity and simplicity and sincerity of the Word of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you for the truth of your word, that indeed it does set us free. It sets us free from the power and the pleasure of sin. For when we are saved, when our sins are washed away in the precious blood of Christ, we no longer have to sin. For we have the Holy Spirit in us to protect us from it. Oh, I know we do sin. And then we have the access to the throne of grace to confess our sins and you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Help us to absorb the truth of this little verse, make it our own, walk in the truth of it so that others can see that Christ is formed in us. For I pray this in his name. Amen.